Well, good morning. And Brad, worship team, thank you so much for the preparation. What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What is there to say? Uh, next week, Tom, who's here, will be back. Uh, it's customary to take a couple of weeks off after Christmas, and so he's given me the privilege and the pleasure of sharing the Word of God with you this morning. And the passage that we've come to is a very significant one. It's the only account of anything we know of in the life of our Lord from the time of his birth to the time of his baptism and the beginning of his public ministry in Israel. Luke is the only evangelist who draws away the veil to show us just this one glimpse of something in the life of our Lord during the years of his preparation. And it is the account of when he is 12 years old. So I'd like to look at the text and go through it, make some comments as I go. And so we'll begin. Luke chapter 2, verses 39 through 52. I'll read the passage, make some comments, then we will pray, and I will try, by God's grace, to exposit the meaning of the text to you. Now when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned unto Galilee. Luke, of course, never mentions the journey to Egypt, the wise men, and all of that. So he goes right straight to Galilee, to their own town of Nazareth. And the child grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. He will come back to that theme, that really, or the book, that, that message is the bookends, that Jesus grew. He was fully human, so he grew up from infancy into young manhood when he begins his ministry. And we're told he was filled with wisdom. The favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover, which was the duty certainly for Joseph three times a year to come to Jerusalem. But their custom was that both of them would go, Joseph and Mary, and so they went every year at the Feast of the Passover. Passover, of course, is that season when Jesus will finally suffer. Now, when he was 12 years old, they went up according to the custom. And when the feast had ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem, and his parents did not know it. It was customary for the, the pilgrims who came to Jerusalem to travel in different companies, typically. The men would go with the boys in one camp, and the women would go with the girls in another camp, returning back to their villages. And Jesus is 12. He's not yet fully a man. Uh, so you can see how that confusion could have arisen. Each of them clearly thought that Jesus was with the other, his parents. And so they supposed him to be in that group, and they went a day's journey. But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances, and when they did not find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. Every parent here knows what they were thinking don't you? If you've had that very awful feeling that you can't find your child, your mind immediately goes to imagine the worse. And so clearly they are in great stress. 
and they rush to Jerusalem in a hurry to search for Jesus, knowing that he is not in the company, in the caravan. He was known for his obedience. So what, what does this indicate? So they're searching for him. And after three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. They find him on the third day. Luke makes a special note of that. It's very significant, as we will see. And all who heard him were amazed. He is in the temple with all the doctors of the law, all the great rabbis of Israel. And he is talking with them. And they are amazed at his understanding and his answers, asking and answering questions. And he has a particular thing he wants to know. He wants to confirm with these, the doctors of the law in Jerusalem. And they are all amazed at his understanding and his answers, although they don't know who he is. And finally, when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother says to him by way of rebuke, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. Your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And now we will learn that Jesus answers and is obedient to another father. And he said to them, why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must? And it's ordained. The word is very strong. It's bound in the Greek that it was necessary for me to be in my father's house. He's putting some distance between Joseph and God. Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand the saying that he spoke to them. But they understood that there was some significance to it. They have been looking for him in great distress, thinking that he is perhaps dead for three days until finally they see him. And that fear dissipates for the joy of finding that Jesus is alive. In the providence of God, what is happening is that Mary is rehearsing her whole emotional state because there will come another time when this godly mother will grieve the loss of this son. But on the third day, he will be restored to her. All the way through the Gospels, that crucifixion and resurrection is being anticipated, and the emotions that will attend to that traumatic event are being rehearsed in grace for people. Jesus is aware now. He has come to understand his destiny, and he knows he must die. And so he is searching the scriptures to come to an awareness of his own understanding of all that God, his Father, intends for him. And he is determined to be obedient to the calling of his Father. His Father in grace ordained this, this loss for three days. 
Now, what is he talking about with these doctors of the law that so astounds them? Luke is written in a way that's, that is such that we can interpret the ending with the beginning, and the beginning with the ending. Just like Tom taught us about how the nativity of Jesus anticipates his death and resurrection. So this story is paralleled in Luke to the Emmaus disciples, where they too are distressed thinking that they have lost Jesus. It's in the last chapter of this gospel. The two of them are walking away from Jerusalem. They think that they have lost Jesus. And it's the third day, actually, when a stranger walks up beside them. And that stranger is asking and answering questions and opening up the scriptures to them. And they are amazed and astounded at what he is sharing about the role of Messiah, which they had completely misunderstood. And so at the end, what happens is when they recognize who he is, their sorrow at thinking that they have lost Jesus is replaced by great joy. And now two other people will rush back to Jerusalem. But because it's the third day, they will return with the great news that Jesus has been found and he is alive. The stories are parallel. And so we know what he was discussing with the Emmaus disciples. He was discussing how the Messiah must suffer and die, beginning with Moses and all the prophets. You can import that same topic back to this passage because Luke has so structured them that you're to interpret the one with the other. He is talking to the doctors of the law in Jerusalem about his understanding of the scripture that Messiah is ordained to suffer and then to be raised the third day and to be glorified. That is the message. So he said to them, Did you not know that I must be in my father's house? And they did not understand his saying that he spoke to them. But he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. He is a good son. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. Mary is a very reflective, thoughtful woman. All the portents that had happened when he was born, all the prophecies, the visitation of angels, all of that put great expectation upon this child. And then we're told Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. The verse is very parallel to to verse 40 at the beginning of the passage. It bookends it. He is growing in wisdom because he's human. He is authentically man. He must grow in stature, in wisdom, although he is fully divine and his wisdom cannot be exhausted. In his incarnation, he becomes just like we are. He grows in favor with God and man. The very language Luke uses here is used of Samuel. He is fulfilling the role of the new Samuel, the greater than Samuel far greater than Samuel, as we will see. Would you join with me in prayer? Father, we thank you for this precious child. We thank you for every stage of the life of our Lord, for he truly knows everything there is to know about our human suffering, our human condition. We thank you for him. We thank you that he did grow in wisdom and grace and stature. We pray that by your grace and through the same spirit we might grow. 
this morning in our understanding of who he is and our love of all that he has done on our behalf. Grant us grace, Father. Minister to our people for Jesus' sake. Amen. Some years ago, I, many of you know I was a lawyer for 12 years, practiced law in Dallas. And in the 90s, I can't remember the precise year, but I was studying about Jesus and I realized what this story is intending to tell us. Here is a 12-year-old boy who has come to realize that the call of God on his life is not going to be like all the other 12-year-old boys. He's come to understand at the age of 12 that he must die for the sins of the world. And that will change everything. That awareness that he comes to here. My secretary, my legal secretary, uh, it was Secretary's Day, I think generally in October. So I took her out, and we, the custom was I would take her out every year. Our whole trial team would go, and she would pick the restaurant, and we would go. She asked if she could bring along her grandson, Chris. And I said, sure. How is Chris doing? She said, well, he just had his 12th birthday. So as we were sitting at the table... Um, and having our lunch, we were having a good time. But I couldn't really take my eyes off this little young man. I mean, all of us have seen children, we've seen them grow up. But here is a man, a young man, who had just turned 12. And I was looking at him. He was a child. I could still see a child in him. He was a man probably just right about to go into what we would call puberty. He's just a child. And I couldn't take my eyes off of this young man thinking, my goodness, when, he, when Jesus was this young man's age, he learned that he must die for the sins of the world. What a heavy burden to put upon a child of 12. My goodness, what an atlas Jesus truly must have been. 12-year-old boy, to know and to accept his destiny. It's apparent from the scripture that although there were many miraculous things that happened about his birth, his whole life, I think, could be characterized by being extraordinarily ordinary. He didn't work miracles. That power to work miracles comes upon him at his baptism when the Spirit of God anoints him. And according to Isaiah 60, then he is able to go out and, Isaiah 61, proclaim liberty, heal the blind, release the captive and the oppressed. Miracles, the power to work miracles comes upon him, but not until he is 30 when he begins his public ministry. There was nothing extraordinary really about his life except for all that attended him when he was born. His life was extraordinarily ordinary. Well, what was his education like? What what kind of education would he have had as this uh, poor young, young man? I want to read you 
about Jesus' education. In his own words, this is, a, this is an amazing thing about the Old Testament. I love the Old Testament because some of you may know this, some of you may not, but Jesus actually has words in his own name recorded in the Old Testament. He speaks in words that you never hear in the New Testament. He's known, of course, as the suffering servant of Isaiah. Everybody knows that. Isaiah chapter 53 describes the suffering servant who is like a sheep before shearers, a lamb carried to sacrifice. He opens not his mouth. But there are four songs of the servant in Isaiah. And Jesus speaks, the servant speaks. The New Testament says the servant of the Lord in Isaiah is Jesus. In chapter 50, he describes his own education. These are the words of Jesus from the Old Testament. If we had a red-letter edition of the Old Testament, these would be in red. They are the words of our Savior, but you never hear them in the New Testament. And here he describes how he was educated during those 30 years. The words of our Savior, Isaiah chapter 50, verses 4 through 9. Jesus says this, The Lord God has given me the tongue of those who are taught, or the tongue of a disciple, that I may know how to encourage the weary one with a word. Morning by morning he awakens me. He awakens my ear to listen and hear like those who were taught, like disciples. God awoke him day by day, he tells us. For 30 years, his father would awaken him in the morning. The Lord God has opened my ear, told him what he must do. But listen to this. And I was not rebellious, nor did I turn my back. He is hearing God is telling him what he must do. And it is a word that you would expect that one would rebel from or turn away from a calling. He said, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. The only time in the Bible we are told about Jesus' physical appearance is that here he has a beard and he gave his cheek to those who pluck it out. I did not hide my face, he says, prophetically. I will not hide my face from shame and spitting. What a word. But the Lord God helps me, therefore I have not been disgraced. His ministry would lead him to a place of great disgrace, shame, spitting. Therefore, I've set my face like a flint, and I know I will not be put to shame. You remember when he goes to Jerusalem for that last time, he goes out in front of the disciples. He set his face like a flint. He was determined to meet his destiny, which he knew from the age of 12 meant his death. But he knew he would not be put to final shame. He who vindicates me is near, Jesus says. Who will contend with me? Let us stand up together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near to me. Behold, the Lord God helps me. It's a confidence he had. Who will declare me guilty? 
He will be obedient to this word. Behold, all of them will wear out like a garment. The moth will eat them up. The destiny of Jesus. How would he read these scriptures? They pierced my hands and my feet. He knew his whole career of suffering. And we are told that by the author of Hebrews that he learned obedience by the things that he suffered. That's how the author of Hebrews characterizes his life. He learned day by day as his father would awaken his ear in the morning, year by year, learning how to comfort the weary with a word, learning how, as Hebrews says also, to sympathize with our sorrows. How do you sympathize with sorrow? You know it. You experience it. And so for all his life, he was ordained to learn obedience through suffering. Hebrews 5.8, although he was a son, nonetheless he learned obedience through the things he suffered. He was called, you read the Gospels, the son of David. Remember that? Son of David, save us, the blind men of Jericho say. And you look at his genealogy in Matthew 1 and in Luke 3, and he's descended from all the royal kings of the, of the line of Judah. He has the noblest blue blood in the land. And the Jews trekked these records. They knew that. Do you ever wonder why they never regarded him as the prince royal, prince the king-in-waiting, Well, the answer to that is very simple. You come to John chapter 8, verse 41, when the Jews are confronting Jesus, they say to him, in the question about, we have Abraham for our father, they say to Jesus, we were not born of fornication. What do they mean by that? They never accepted his royal claim. Why? Because they never understood or believed in the virgin birth. All his life, he was regarded as a son of fornication. He was regarded as a bastard. That's a hard word. His holy mother was called a whore. What does that mean, bastardy? Why would he have to suffer through that reproach all his life? What does that mean? It means, doesn't it, that you're illegitimate. Your birth was a mistake. Anyone here ever suffer from that reproach? Well, let me tell you, Jesus knows how that hurts. 
and as a word of comfort for you. None of you is truly unwanted. God wanted you and had a great purpose for your life. That's why you're here. That's the word of encouragement and comfort that Christ has for you. Jesus was also, very clearly, during those 30 years, misunderstood by his own family. We're told explicitly his, his brothers did not believe in him. His mother charged him with causing her and his father to sorrow, and his ministry, you know, there came a day in his ministry when his mother and his brothers came to collect him like he's out of his mind, like he's mad. Anyone here ever been misunderstood by your family? Hurtfully misunderstood? Jesus knows. At age 12, Jesus, knowing he must die, had to tell his father not to arrange a marriage for him. That never happens in Jewish life. At 13, he will be an adult. He will be bar mitzvahed, and immediately a contract of marriage will be made for him. But he knows that the calling on his life means he must remain single. He will never have a wife, although he is fully human. He will never have a wife or children to comfort him. For the sake of the kingdom of heaven, he must make himself, in his own words, a eunuch. His destiny was to embrace the single life, for that was God's will for him. Can't you imagine when his father neglects the joyful duty of arranging a marriage, all that would be said about that? That Jesus is a strange one, isn't he? Doesn't he like girls? Will nobody have him? He knew loneliness. And at 12, he had to embrace it. Anyone here ever felt left out because of the unique call of God on your life? Anyone lonely? But knowing a Savior who knows how to comfort the lonely with a word? Somewhere between when he was 12 and 30, he lost his father, the good Joseph, to death. He became the head of the family. That's indicated because his dying word, his last act of obedience, is obedience to the commandment to honor your father and mother. He makes provision for his mother before he dies. Anyone here grieving the loss of a loved one or a family member? Jesus knew that. He began his ministry. He had large initial success, but there was also much skepticism. 
all the respectable teachers in Israel rejected him utterly. Well, he had some who would accept him. Publicans, prostitutes, Samaritans, lepers, blind, lame, demon-possessed. He was the hope of the hopeless. What a ministry is that? Crowds came, but crowds also left. After he fed the 5,000, after he walked on water, you come to John 6, 68, and the people walked away from him. And he turned to his disciples and said, Will you too leave? John the Baptist doubted him. Anyone here ever doubted your call? That God is really using you? Jesus has a word for the weary. He was betrayed by one who shared his table, who broke his bread, he said, has lifted up his heel against me. He was denied by the one who swore the greatest loyalty. Though I die with you, I will remain faithful. Anyone here ever been disappointed by others? Betrayed by someone who swore undying love and loyalty. He was delivered over to a corrupt judge to be scourged. The word for that is battered. Anyone here ever been battered? I know a Savior who has a word of comfort for you. He was handed over to cruel soldiers who tormented him all night. They mocked his kingdom, gave him a broken reed, crowned him with thorns. This is the king of the Jews. We're also told that they stripped him, made him naked in mockery. He was handed a scarlet robe. Today, we would justly call that abuse. Anyone here ever been shamed, sexually abused, wondering whoever hears your cry, who was there who would cry out for you? I have a Savior for you who went through all of that and prayed for those who did it. Finally, he was tortured to death on a cross. We hear these stories all the time about the inhuman cruelty of people to other people. You think, how in the world can, can God endure this kind of world? Is he mindful of our suffering? 
How, what purpose could there be for this kind of a world? Well, he knows. And here's the cries of those who are brutally, brutally tortured to death. Why did he suffer all of these things? He says himself, going through all of that, he could have called for 12 legions of angels. One word from Jesus, Father, it is enough. And it could have all been taken away. But he had to persevere in obedience until there was another word from Jesus. Father, it is finished. Only because he can utter that cry can we have forgiveness and the hope of healing through all that we suffer. What can take away my sin? What can wash away my sin? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Why did he suffer all of these things? Did anyone suffer like he did? Why did he suffer all of those things? Because he loved you. Because he loves you. And he can hear your cry. And he knows how to comfort the weary with a word. He was tested in all these things just as we are, without sin. Without sin. And so he can give us rest and healing and peace with God, and peace with man. I'm amazed at how we so often misunderstand the seriousness of sin. Paul describes it. He calls it the exceeding sinfulness of sin. It's something that can only be measured by itself. The exceeding sinfulness of sin. What does our sin look like before a God who is altogether holy and infinite? Exceeding sinfulness of sin. You see, that's why there could never be a salvation by good works. Do you understand that? Most of the world thinks that God is going to weigh our works We hope that our good will outweigh our bad. That's folly. So far away from the God of the Bible. There's no holiness in that. No understanding of God's holiness. His standard is absolute perfection. And we are finite creatures. But our sin offends an infinite God. If my sin of a finite creature offends an infinite God, how could I ever compile a list of good works to multiply times infinity? I can't do it. It takes an infinite God-man to pay that price. It takes the sacrifice of an infinite 
man, God, fully human, to take my place. But he has to be divine to multiply and satisfy an infinite debt I owe. There cannot be any salvation by works. It's impossible. But there can be salvation by faith. By faith in another sacrifice, in his sacrifice. An infinite God-man could satisfy our debt of sin. And only Jesus can offer us peace with God. And in him, we have a God who sympathizes with our sorrow, with our deepest hurts, all of those wounds you think are too deep to heal. He knows all of them and loves you anyway. And that's his invitation. He offers to take away our sin and in its place to give us his perfect righteousness so that you are holy, standing before an infinite God. All he asks is what? That we confess with our mouths and believe in our hearts that God vindicated him, as he said, by raising him from the dead. Because he loved us. And his heart is to raise us from our death so that he can be eternity with us. What a Savior. Twelve years old, he knows what he must do. Did you not know that it is necessary that I be about my father's business? Father, we thank you for this amazing son. We see why you loved him so. To give such a precious son in exchange for the sin of the world. Who could have ever imagined or thought of such a plan of salvation? Grant us the grace for your spirit to see, to hear, to believe, and to confess what Jesus has done for us. We thank you that we can cry out in our own sorrow to a God who knows our sorrows and has taken away our sin. Amen.